been looking forward to this morning. I've been digging into this topic for the past couple of weeks and preparing my, my heart and mind for it. I mentioned this morning, and I, I rarely would say this, but I, it's probably been one of the most challenging weeks in just keeping my heart and mind focused on, on the task at hand. Just many things came and, and troubled my mind, and I was thinking about that. I'm not at all a mystical guy, so I don't think there's some kind of mystical reason behind it, but then I look at God's Word, and I see the the topic at hand is a challenging one because we're talking about resisting pride and embracing humility. And what we'll see this morning is the, the scope of the subject goes deep and wide and the need to, to address it and how to speak to it as well. At first I was thinking about, well, let's, let's make this, you know, I'm trying to think about this, the title to get to a sermon and I put down first, you know, death. Death to pride. And then I, after studying the subject for, in depth for a while, I said, no, you can't really put pride to death. It's kind of like hunger and cravings. Uh, you can't kill hunger, and you'll always have cravings, and your body will let you know when you're hungry, and it will give you cravings. We have a few expecting mothers in our class, and it's not unusual, I guess, to have pickles and vanilla ice cream as a combination of cravings, as inordinate as that might be. Well, likewise, your flesh is going to want to assert itself. It's going to have its own craving. It's going to crave for attention. And your flesh will hunger for preeminence. And there's really no getting away from that is being aware of it, knowing how to, to resist and how to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the Lord. It's a subject that no doubt spares no one. I think every time someone comes to the Word of God, the first thing they do is they're made aware of their own shortcomings. No, no preacher comes to the Word... No teacher comes to the word walking away proud. He walks away humbled. And I look at this and I think, wow, how many, how many places in my life I, I need to, to be some vigilant about on this, on this particular subject. So I broke it down in four different areas I want to look at this morning. One, I want to talk about the scope of pride. There you go, the, the scope of pride. Looking at the biblical definition is going to help us understand the nature of pride. So we're going to see the scope of it. What does it mean? How is it defined? how the scripture talk about it, to give us a, a baseline definition and from there try to, to expand from there. Then we're going to look at the manifestation of pride. How does it manifest itself? And we're going to use James 4 as our, as our base text and, and pick at that and we'll be looking back and forth all the time in James chapter 4. But we need to understand what, it, what does it look like. It's one thing to have this, this outward look of pride as this arrogant person that's you know, so arrogant, and he comes and imposes himself. He's a, he's a bully. There's, okay, that might be part of it, but pride has a, a base definition, and we're going to see how it manifests itself, and we'll see that in James 4. Then we're going to look at the origins of pride. Okay, we understand how it's defined. We see how it's manifested, but what's the source of the problem? What, what is the problem? I mean, how does pride manifest itself? And there's two things in James 4 that I thought were key Two words that were read this morning already is in verse 4. He describes the problem they're having, and then he calls them adulteresses. You're an adulterer, and then he says you're double-minded in verse 8. So we're going to see what those two things mean in the context of that passage, with verse 6 being the pivotal moment in the text where he's saying, you know, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And then we're going to complete our look at the subject by seeing the antithesis to pride, looking at humility. I mean, without humility, you don't understand how to gain victory over pride, and what does that look like? So, we read already James 4, so I'm not going to reread that passage and reread that text, just re remembering that the context of that passage is when James, half-brother of Christ, is writing to, in the first chapter, he talks about the, those who were dispersed due to persecution. So, James is addressing believers that have been under severe persecution, they're dispersed throughout the uh, country and they throughout the world, really. And as they spread, they take the gospel. As they spread, they're planting churches. And he's addressing them and speaking to them as a, as a shepherd. He's encouraging them to live righteously under persecution. He's encouraging them to demonstrate their faith through their actions. He's asking them and encouraging them to walk in wisdom, to walk in all humility, to be fervent in prayer, to wait on the coming of the Lord. So he's exhorting these these believers that have been dispersed, that were under persecution, and encouraging them. And yet with that, we find a body of believers, as you read this text, what's going on? They're, they're grumbling, they're fighting, and there's trouble 
in his exhortation in verse 6 is, God is opposed to the proud, but give grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God and God and resist the devil. So first thing is look at the scope. Scope of pride. The scope of pride is this statements we see in Scripture describing it. And one thing I was talking to, to Nathan a couple weeks back about talking on the subject, and first thing we are saying, wow, the subject of pride is, is so broad and vast. How are we going to tackle such a subject? My goal this morning is not to go through the 120 verses, whatever there are on pride, and, and walk through a list of them. But I'm going to give a couple that really give us a, a picture of the significance of the subject. Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6.16 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven things that are an abomination to him. Now, if we read that, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to take this list. I mean, God's saying, these are the things that I hate and that have an abomination. I'm going to put those in the front of my Bible and make sure I know what those are. Because, I mean, I can't do everything, but I could at least be faithful to these seven things. And, of course, what's the first thing he mentions? A proud look, pride, arrogance, a haughty look and haughty eyes. Proverbs 8, verse 13, he says, Pride and arrogance, the evil way, and the perverted mouth, I hate. He says, I hate the pride, I hate the arrogant, the one who perverts his mouth. Proverbs 16, verse 5, he says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Wow, when you're reading through Scripture, you're seeing God hates pride. And that should, that should catch my attention, and it will catch our attention, of course, even in, in James. And I mentioned here in Jeremiah 48, the reason why I, I go to Jeremiah 48, because it's a unique text that gives, a, a, a broad, gives you every facet of what pride means. Unfortunately, in English, our language is limited, so we have, we're using pride several times in this verse, and really, he's using different words, but we only have English word pride to translate. So we miss some of the nuances that he brings about here. And Jeremiah, Prophet Jeremiah, is speaking to the pride of Moab, the Moabites. If you remember Moab, the word Moab means of his father. Moab was the fruit of an incestual relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. From there, the people of Moab, the Moabites, came about. And from there, they established themselves east of the Jordan River. And uh, Joshua, when he came to invade Jericho, he, land, he left from the land of Moab, crossed the Jordan River into Jericho and conquered Jericho and entered the Promised Land. This relationship, there's a long relationship between the Moabites and the Israelites, but suffice it to say that they were often Israel's enemies and they were strongly condemned for their idolatry. So Moabites have a very conflicted relationship with Israel. Known as, they're known for being a proud people. And when you look at Jeremiah 48, verse 29, he says this, he says, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness, his pride, his arrogance, and his self-exaltation. I tell you, having this named once will be enough for me to be afraid. But I mean, you're, you're, you're labeled in five different words here to be say, hey, you're a proud person, and you're arrogant, you're up... All these things here describing these people. And I want to just briefly look at how these words are used and how they're defined. First of all, the word proud, even when it's first used here, has a literal sense. The literal sense of the word pride is to be elevated, to be high, above the trees. It's a word used to describe the height of Goliath. Goliath was high. He was pride. Well, they're describing simply that he was taller than the others and above the others. If you use it in a figurative sense... It means someone that is exalted over others. So the first term that's used is pride is means that they're exalted over the others. Psalm 10 says the wicked in his haughtiness does not seek him. He is elevated and he is exalted. The second use of pride in this verse where he says uh, he is pride, he, says, he talks about exaltation, he talks about majesty. As a matter of fact, it's a term used in Exodus 15 to describe the majesty of God. Here is described in a negative way to, to describe man majestically, basically is describing a pompous man. So you have a man that is self-exalted. Now you have the, the pompous man who elevates himself in a majestic way. The third use of the word proud in this verse is the word lofty, arrogant, but lofty, more of an irreverent or impiety. 
So you see the picture he's, he's, he's given here already in these first three words. He's describing a man that is the Moabites, a proud people. They're self-exalted. They exalt themselves over others. They're pompous. They're lofty and irreverent. Another word that he uses here in the second use, which is pride, his pride and arrogance, his pride there is the word gava, which is the swelling up. The swelling of the sea is where that term is, is used. So it's described as something that swells up in someone. You could think of, of a, a peacock that swells up, of the ocean that swells, the, the tide that swells up. So the image there is of a swelling up. And the last one, the word arrogance that's translated here, is a word, another word being used, the word room, which means height or elevation of mind. Lofty mind, elevation of mind, thinking you're above and superior, but it's elevation of mind. So just taking these words already, what do you see? You see that when God is describing a prideful person and the Moabites might be this proud nation typical that we can identify in Jeremiah, he says what? He says they're, they're elevated, they exalt themselves over others, they're pompous, they're lofty, they're the swelling up and they're elevated in their own minds. So that gives us already a, a, a raw base explanation of that. Then we go also to a picture of the pride in the fall of Lucifer in Isaiah 14. In Isaiah 14, and again, I'm laying the foundation for, okay, what, what are we talking about when we're talking about pride? Because it's going to lay the foundation for us in saying, okay, if this is what pride is, then how does it manifest itself? What's the source of it? Why that pride is there? And then from there, what's, you know, how does humility respond to that? We see it in Isaiah 14. He says, but in Verse 13 says, But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recess of the north. Verse 14 says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. The description there and the key word is, is, is evident in his pride. He ascends, he raises, he's exalted to, to exalt himself on the level of the Most High. C.S. Lewis says, or describes pride rather, as the great sin, the devil's most effective and destructive tool. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. I do find it interesting, as you look at this passage, and what I found interesting is, as you read James 4, and as we read through it already, he gives them the admonition that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Then what does he say, what does he say after that? Draw close to God and do what? Resist the devil. Now that quote that God opposes the proud is also given to us in 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, verse 5 through 7, gives the same admonition. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What does he say in 1 Peter 5, 8? The same thing. He says, but the devil is going around as a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. I find it interesting that both times that he, he presents the dangers of pride and the need to be humble, he describes the, the work of the devil in the midst of that, meaning the danger that the adversary presents I do believe that, as we saw here, that pride is one of the most destructive tools, not just for unbelievers, but for believers as well. We see the picture of pride in, in the fall of man, do we not? Genesis 3, verse 4. The serpent says to the woman, you certainly will not die, for God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll become what? Like God, knowing good and evil. So what do we see here? We see the devil, the, the proud spirit, tempts Eve. First, he arrogantly contradicts God and arrogantly will charges God with lying. And then he introduces doubt in the truthfulness, doubt in the goodness of God. And in doing so, he presents a possibility that they could become like God. Notice again, the same problematic here is the idea of being elevated, an elevated status raised in the idea to be exalted. This subject should, should catch our attention because in verse 6 of our passage, he says, God is opposed to the proud. The word opposed means to range in battle against. Now just think about that for a moment. The significance of it, even as we read it in Scripture, as we see it in Proverbs, as we see it in Jeremiah, the pride of the Moabites. But understand when he says in James 4 that God is opposed to, he's resist. It doesn't mean, ah, I don't like 
pride. You know, I wish you were so proudful. I wish, he says, he, he, he's saying, I range in battle against the proud. Now, I don't know about you, but I, that's a losing battle. That's a losing battle. I, I love, now this is a little bit longer quote, but I love this quote from one author. He says it this way. He says, if your pride causes you to exalt yourself, you're painting a target on your back, and you're inviting God to open fire, and he will. For he has declared his determination to bring it low wherever he finds it, whether among angels or humans, believers or unbelievers. It was pride that caused Lucifer to be cast out of heaven and Adam and Eve to be cast out of Eden. And it is pride that will be our undoing if we tolerate it in our lives. The danger of pride is a sobering reality that each of us needs to ponder. Truly, it is our greatest enemy. John Stott picks up on that thought and says, Pride is your greatest enemy, and humility is your greatest friend. I thought when I read that, and I studied through that, I was like, wow, pride is my greatest enemy. And that's why the, the Lord speaks about it so strongly and so clearly. So understanding that, okay, what, what do we do with that? How, how, is it, how does it manifest itself? Well, it clearly manifests itself well in James chapter 4. Looking at pride and how it manifests itself will help us identify it. I see it and then what to do with it. And here's how, here's how I've defined it. And I'll explain, to, I'll explain to why I use these terms because it'll be helpful even when we come to humility in just a moment. How, how do you identify pride? I put down pride is the sinful catalyst. So what's a catalyst? A catalyst is something, is an, agent, is an agent that provokes change. A catalyst is something that provokes action. Pride is a sinful catalyst that takes a common need, a common good, something enjoyable, and he elevates it. He exalts it. And in doing so, what does he do? He exalts it to a sinful ambition. He exalts it to an inordinate appetite. He exalts it to an uncurbed passion, a disproportionate fascination. He exalts it to an irrational devotion or even an unrestrained craving. Sin is this catalyst, pride is this catalyst that takes something and elevates it and makes it sinful. One author states that God hates pride because it's the manifestation of the deepest depravity and the root cause of all forms of sin. C.S. Lewis says that pride leads to every other vice. It is a complete anti-God state of mind. Other authors speak to the same thing. Augustine in the City of God says that pride is the root of sin. Understanding pride is this, this catalyst that elevates something at a place it should not be and makes it sinful. What we'll see in James is that he clearly tells them sinful desires, sinful passions, sinful lust. You're elevating these and you're challenging your passion and desire for the Lord. And he'll, he'll unfold that in James chapter 4. But in our passage, it's pretty straightforward, is it not? In James 4, he said... The solution to the problems they were facing is found in his admonition that we just saw in verse 6. But what were these manifestations of pride in James 4? Look, look back down at the text. First thing he says, quarrels, conflicts. Pride is the cause of internal conflict. You're lusting over things you don't have. You're envious for things you don't have or you cannot obtain. You have wrong motives. You ask, you don't receive. You're asking wrong. You have the wrong motives. You're asking for things to satisfy your own desires and your own pleasures. Your friendship with the world. You have these conflicted passions with the world. So he's describing how pride is manifesting itself. And his answer, of course, the turning point is in verse 6. And how to humble yourself. But as he describes this in our passage, as man exalts himself, man inevitably exalts himself at the expense of God and at the expense of others. As pride increases, arrogant, rude, selfish, self-serving, harsh, angry behavior ensues. If you go through scripture, you'd see a, a, a broken narrative 
of men who manifested pride. I mean, at one point they were successful, at one point they were blessed, and then in one moment they elevated themselves. And in doing so, brought about their own destruction. We see this with Uzziah, just one example. You could probably think of many examples in your mind, Uzziah just being one of them. He started out thinking more highly of himself than he should have and developed an exaggerated sense of his own importance and an exaggerated sense of his own abilities. Uzziah, in 2 Chronicles 26, we see that he grew strong. The Bible says his fame spread far. He was marvelously helped till he was strong, but the pride catalyst stepped in and took what was good what was given to him and blessed, and it says what? But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. We find similar uh, narratives with, with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Uh, we see many more in Scripture, of course, David encountering the people. I mean, the, many times that, that narrative is brought back in Scripture. So it might be, it might be hard to summarize the scope or the, the manifestations of pride, but let me give you just a few examples of this and then talk about how, his, how their spiritual pride affects the church as well. I wrote just a few thoughts on, on how it manifests itself. I put down that pride takes knowledge and exalts it into intellectual disdain. Knowledge that should draw me closer to God is now used as a tool to, to separate me from others. I know better than others. Pride takes wealth, exalts it, and turns it into something I, I must have. Wealth that should have been used as a means to advance the kingdom is now a shelter, is now a refuge, is now a source of comfort, of assurance. Something that no longer is a means to an end, but now is an end to my means. Pride takes stewardship and exalts it to ownership. Stewardship is seen in that I humbly recognize that what I have belongs to the Lord and I put that to his service. But now, I take that and, and I take it to satisfy. Now, I believe it's mine to satisfy my own pleasures with. I guard it. I protect it. I preserve it. Pride takes conviction. Good conviction. Exalts them to Condemnation. Personal convictions turn into condemnation of all those who don't align with the same thoughts. Pride takes a blessing and exalts it into ungratefulness. The gifts that we have that are from the Lord, everything that we have is from the Lord, turn into a desire for more, turns into expectations. Instead of realizing that we are undeserving of anything, we begin to expect everything. There's no trait more deceptive and easier to see in others than it is to see in myself. Let me tell you, I, after going through this, there's one thing I, I came to one conclusion. There, it would be impossible for me to overstep, or to overestimate, rather, the deep and wide-reaching range, range of pride. You know, sometimes you could underestimate things, but there's, there's no way I can take pride and overestimate the dangers that it represents and how often it lurks itself in my own heart in its own desire to exalt something that is there and take due credit for it. Here's another long quote, but Jonathan Edwards, after the 1737 revival in Massachusetts, made this statement about spiritual pride. And you're thinking, spiritual pride is an oxymoron. How can you have spiritual pride? Those two things are in, are in opposite. They're a contradiction of sorts. But he addresses the fact that, oh, how many times within our spiritual realms, spiritual pride takes root. You would think in ministry, you would think that in ministry you wouldn't be prideful. I mean, we're, we're missionaries. We're humble. We're pastors. We're humble. Oh, how many times we're conflicted with that. Look what he says. And this is typical genre for Jonathan Edwards. The first and worst cause of errors that abound in our day and age is spiritual pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancements of Christ. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. Pride is the main handle by which he has hold of Christian persons and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. 
spiritual pride is the main spring, or at least the main support of all other errors. And until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other disease. Wow. You would think when it comes to spirituality, we would have to have an issue with pride, but oh, how pride can so easily manifest itself in our heart. Look at the origins of pride. I think it's, I think it's super helpful in James 4, the way he goes about this, because he, he points to two things. He points to the obvious problem that they're going to have is, first of all, the very simple premise of it is that man cannot have two masters. You cannot have two masters. This internal struggle that he pictures in James 4, these internal conflicts, he says in verse 1, is the source, not your pleasures, that war within you. You have conflicting pleasures. The internal struggle pictured in James 4 is the one which raises the questions as to which pleasure, which passions, which commitment is going to be exalted over the other. These conflicting passions they're, they're having, we see it in verse 1, the, the source of their pleasures. We see it in verse 3, the, the wrong motives. Push your request and pursue your own selfish pleasures. And then he uses the term here, you adulteresses, you're an adulterer. Pride comes from exalting one's own pleasures and lust, and selfish desires. It is for selfish gain, for selfish ambition, and for selfish desires. And these exalted passions are characterized by this one statement here, you are adulteresses. They had embraced other passions and elevated them over their passion for God. We know that the picture of the bride in Scripture is, is, is common and well-established. God describes the relationship with his people is likened to that of, of a marriage. We are his bride. Ephesians, Ephesians 5 speaks to that and gives a beautiful picture of that. This imagery, the symbolism is one where the, the bridegroom sacrificially, lovingly chosen to the church to be his bride. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So with his bride imagery that he's casting here, when Israel is unfaithful to God, they're unfaithful because they have rival affections. And in doing so, they're said to be adulteresses or being a harlot. This was, of course, particularly evident as they were unfaithful in worshiping other idols. So he's saying that the, the, the base of the, the problem you have is that here's, here's what pride is. Here how it's manifested. But your problem is that you have conflicted passions. You've elevated something at a place where it should not be. And it's conflicting with a desire and a passion for the one true God. And the label he gives to that is, you're an adulterous nation. And we'll see a comment he makes here in just a minute. I, I don't share, you know, I'm a God that deserves the one and only place. I will not share passions with another. The second picture he gives of it, I think, is very helpful as well. He describes it in the fact that they're double-minded in verse 8. So two accusations here. First, he gives a description of the problem. But he gives two words that give a description of the problem, and that is, one, you're an adulterer, and two, you're double-minded. We've been studying this a little bit in family life in our Sunday school class because we've been going through Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, 113, he addresses the fact that they're, he hates the double-minded, but he loves the law, the contrast between the man who's a double-minded person and the man who loves the law. One of the greatest pictures of what it means to be double-minded is Elijah when he's confronting the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. Remember, he's confronting the prophets. But my, the question here is not what he says to the prophets. The question is what he says to the people of Israel. He tells them, how long are you going to continue to limp between two different opinions? Two different opinions, the same word, double-mindedness, that's used in, in Psalm 119. So what is he telling them? He says, how long... So he's addressing, of course, he's going to confront the prophets of Baal. He's going to provide the sacrifice. We know how that turns out for them. But he takes the issue of the people of Israel and says, how long are you going to limp along between two different opinions? Of course, what he's trying to tell them is quit straddling the fence and choose sides. So when he's telling the people here in James 4 that you are double-minded, what he's saying? You're straddlers. You, you, you're conflicted in what you stand for and you're conflicted in what you believe. A double-minded person is a half-hearted person. A double-minded person clearly demonstrates through his life that he has elevated some things in his life 
that rival a singular passion for God or a singular heart for God. tell you, whenever we look at our own lives, isn't that easy to see how we become so easily conflicted? Something that should have been innocent, enjoyable, a good thing, next thing you know, causes a, a conflicted interest because we've raised it at a level it should never have been. I could give you illustration after illustration, but that may not be necessarily helpful. But I think we all know in our own heart how that, how that might play out. But a single-minded person has a singular passion for God, a singular passion for God's Word, and a singular passion for God's people. Those three things are always connected. God, His Word, and His people. If you got somebody that loves two, but not three, and you can't love two out of three, all three are, are intertwined. Pride comes from exalting one's own thoughts, one's own emotion, one's own, own ideas, and, and you become now conflicted. This idea of being double-minded, James has already addressed the issue with uh, chapter 1, verse 8. Probably one of the texts that we're more familiar with. He says, you know, you're double-minded, unstable in all your ways. So in James chapter 1, he already addresses the issue of the people. You're, you're, you have conflicting thoughts. Choose what you will believe. You're thinking, well, intellectually, I believe these but how it plays out is that there can't be place for both. One has to be elevated over the, over the other. In James 1, and you could walk through that text and, and draw out so many good applications. James 1, when he says you're double-minded, he describes what that looks like, what it looks like to be double-minded person. And a proud person is going to exemplify these because he's a proud person. He's elevating something. And he's double-minded in his thoughts and in his ways. James 1 describes it as a lack of stability. They're going to reflect a lack of stability. Verses 3, verse 8, he'll be fickle, he'll be inconsistent. A double-minded person is going to be unstable in his way. A double-minded person is going to be immature. James 1 says they're, they're not complete. There's this incompleteness. There's this immaturity that's not there that should be there. So a double-minded person is, is unstable. He's, he's immature. He lacks wisdom. Verse 5 of chapter 1 of James. He lacks wisdom. He lacks the ability to distinguish between not good and bad. Most people, even a child, could distinguish between what is good and what is bad. It's the difference between what is good and what is best. But an unstable person, a double-minded person, has elevated some other desire and passions over that, and now he's conflicted between discerning what is really best. Here is a picture that we see in James chapter 4. A prideful person is going to exalt a pleasure, he's going to exalt a passion, he's going to exalt, ex, uh, exalt a desire to the point where it rivals and it competes with that which should be an unrivaled desire to please God. It should be an unadulterated passion for God, and it should be a single-minded focus on and an allegiance to God. So in James 4, our passage, what does it say in verse 5? That shows... The extent of this is God's thoughts about this. When you do this, when you exalt something else in your pride and you exalt something else, what does he say in verse 5? Do you think that the scripture says to no purpose, he jealously desires the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us? What is he saying? He says, you've exalted these other things here. You're adulterer, you're double-minded. And says, in doing so, you're confronted with a jealous God. What do you think? He says, do you think he says no? I like the way he words it, right? He says, do you think the Scripture says to no purpose? You know, what do you think the Scripture says? You have a jealous God who claims the sole right to the throne. He shares, he does not share that throne with any other thought, any other mind. And whether that is challenged, it's not a challenge to his throne. It's, it's a, it brings instability and confusion to our minds. It brings destruction, it brings unsettledness. So such a man can only approach God by submitting himself to God. By, and to, to submit is to, to arrange yourself under, right? To submit is to arrange yourself under, to be subordinate to something. You cannot be exalted and arrange yourself under God. You cannot be exalted 
and arrange yourself under God. And that was a problem they were confronted with here. So, knowing that, we look at the antithesis to pride. This was helpful for me to understand this part of it. So if I understand pride to be this catalyst to sin, humility is a catalyst to godliness. The first thing I went to, I went to the obvious place. I went to Galatians 5. And then, okay, well, in Galatians 5, it gives us what? Galatians 5 gives us the fruit of the Spirit. Here's how the Spirit manifests itself. And you would think, Galatians 5, you would think, well, if one of the fruits should be humility because the Scripture speaks of it so much. What you realize is Galatians 5 does not mention humility as one of the aspects or facets of the fruit of the Spirit. But rather, humility is the catalyst that makes this spiritual fruit manifests itself. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all require a healthy dose of humility to manifest itself. So that's why we have this, this, these, these two polar forces, one Pride that wants to elevate something and make it sinful, and humility wants to be that catalyst to godliness, and those two things are so stark contradictions. One of the greatest attributes you should look for in a spiritual man is that of humility. Because without humility, he lacks the ability to be a godly person. Because that is what's going to be the catalyst for him, for godliness. A few people make reference to death, I think, in a helpful way. C.S. Lewis says, pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Common sense means they lack the ability to discern. They lack wisdom, right? Whereas pride is defined as exaltation, humility is defined as being cast down Literally means not rising far from the ground. What a contrast between the one who exalts himself above the trees, literally, to the one who rises not far from the ground. It is the exact antithesis to pride. A few other comments were made about that. A few other quotes. John Christensen says this, Humility is the root, it is the mother, it is the nurse, it is the foundation and bond of all virtue. Jonathan Edwards, again, says we must view humility as one of the most... I think i got one more on that one. We must view humility as one of the most essential things that characterizes true Christianity. So let me make a few observations from James 4 again. What James 4 says, and when he says God opposes the proud, he goes to battle against the proud and gives grace to the humble... Then from there he says, what, draw close to him. And here's three responses that he gives in our James 4 passage. And then I want to give us a few ways we can cultivate humility this morning. Three responses he gives in James 4. One, he says, relinquish, surrender, surrender, surrender your rights, submit yourself to him. You cannot come to God without surrendering everything you are, everything you have. Submit yourself to him and place yourself under his loving, kind, and gracious rule. How many times do we resist that? How many times do we resist that? And our flesh, it wants to hold on to something. It's like, no, just submit. Humble yourself under the loving care of God and, and relinquish that. Then he says to resist. Resist the devil. I, mean, I mentioned, mentioned here... Uh, in verse 8, I believe, then mentioned back in First Peter as well. So it's interesting at both times to, to resist, to be vigilant, be on your guard. Do not let in the fold of your heart something that will be unduly exalted. You know, sometimes decisions you make is not a right or wrong decision. It's knowing that if I, if I give in to this, it's going to be exalted and it's going to become a pride problem. For some, it could be wealth. It could be a new position. 
and you think is a good thing, but you like the power, you like the wealth it gives you, you like all the flexibility it gives you, you can give all these things, and what becomes a blessing becomes actually a source of pride, and in doing so becomes sinful for your own destruction. It doesn't draw you closer to God, it draws you away from the Lord. Be, be vigilant, or not let in the fold something that, hey, for one person, this one person might be able to handle, maybe you can't handle it. Be wise about that. Be wise about what comes into your life and exalts itself. And then he goes through this, this repentance in our passage. Cleanse your hands, verse 8. Uh, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double mind. Be miserable, mourn, weep. Let your laughter turn into mourning, in verse 9. He describes this, this repentance of cleansing, this purifying. Confess. Confess pride when you see it. Confess pride to your spouse when you've been guilty of it. It's easy to have conflict with the spouse because there's often conflicting ideas rising in who's going who's gonna to submit, resist, confess. It's a very healthy and healing to do that. So how can we, how can we cultivate humility? Five points here to to briefly give us some ideas on, on how to cultivate humility. The first one is cultivate a closer relationship with God. His first response after he says that, in verse 6, he says what? Submit therefore to God, resist the devil. He says what? Come close to God. Understand what he's done for you. Understand what he does continually for you. Read the word, love the word, embrace the word. We should continually give credit to God, give glory to God. Our speech, our language should, should be indicative of our one heart and passion for Him. They that know God will be humble. You can't go to the Word and be proud. You can't go to the Word and walk away a proud man. You go to the Word and walk away a humble man, a grateful man, a thankful man, a hopeful man, but not a proud man. No one walks away from the Word thinking, man, I'm pretty good after all, I might. No, you walk away thinking God Almighty is great and wonderful, worthy to be praised. And the more you draw close to God, the more you'll realize how you cannot be proud. Cultivate a life modeled after Christ. Andrew Murray says it well. He says, Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature. He is the eternal love, humbling itself, clothing itself in the garb of meekness and gentleness to win and serve and save us. Christ modeled and embodied humility. He is the only one that is genuinely humble. And it can be said of him that he is humble. Our view of humility can be radically changed when we meditate on the one who left us with the greatest example of humility. The very fact of leaving heaven, coming to earth, taking on the likeness of man, is the most humbling of acts. We have no idea of how humbling that really was for him to do so. Throughout his life on earth, Jesus demonstrated a spirit of profound humility. He came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And even on his last night with his disciples, what does he do? He washes their feet as an example of the humility that they were to have one for another and serving one another. What, what a model, what an example to follow. We cultivate, a, <clears throat> we cultivate humility by cultivating a closer relationship with God, by cultivating a life modeled after Christ as we are sanctified, we are sanctified in his image. Cultivate obedience to God's word. You can't be a humble person and live in open rebellion to God's word. If you, if you are in open rebellion, what I simply mean by that, it sounds like a harsh word. All that means that you're confronted with the word and you're saying, nah, that doesn't really apply to me. I'm the exception. Because my circumstances justify that I am. Every step of obedience to the word is a step of humility because every time you obey the word, you're submitting yourself to the word and you're recognizing that I'm placing myself under the word and it's an act of humility to do so. 
So when the Bible says, repent, you repent. When the Bible says, forgive, you forgive. When the Bible says, to love, you love. When it says, to give, you give. Why? Because every time you submit yourself to the word, you cultivate a spirit of humility. And every time you oppose that, you feed pride because you're telling yourself, mm, I can't afford this, or I can't do that, or you don't understand what they've done to me, and you, and you let some other thought, other emotion rise up above instead of lowering yourself in obedience to God's word. Cultivate a spirit of submission and a spirit of accountability. Cultivate a spirit of submission and accountability. Yes, if you're a young person and you're still in the authority of your parents, that's the easier answer. Learn to cultivate obedience to your parents, loving obedience to your parents. That in and of itself cultivates humility. I'll tell you what, God's placed authorities in your life, has he not? Those authorities are not always fair and just and loving and kind, but he's placed authorities in your life. Worldly authorities on the workforce, spiritual authorities. Every time I submit myself for the sake of the Lord, I cultivate a spirit of submission and accountability. Instead of sitting there thinking, ah, I think I know better. Uh, I think I could have done a better job. Why, when we say, why didn't they do it? That's assuming I would have done it differently, and of course I would have done it better. Once we start rising up that way, it, it, it feeds and exalts a thought in my mind that somehow I would have done a better job than that person, and I could have handled things better. Oh, what a cultivate humility by learning to humble yourself and submit and be accountable. A person who doesn't desire accountability is a proud person. He wants to answer to no one. Oh, but answer to God. Well, no, it really actually manifests itself in how you respond one with another. Cultivate a spirit of service one towards another. Placing the needs of others over my own. The real measure of our humility towards God is seen in how we relate to man. The conflict they had here was amongst each other because of the pride that rose from exalted passions, exalted desires, and exalted thoughts. As pride manifests itself in conflict one with another, so will humility manifest itself in serving one another in love. Romans 12, 16 says, Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but associate with the lowly. I tell you, there are a lot of things that every, every church family has, has its own culture. If you're cowboy church, you probably ride a horse coming into church. I don't know. Every church has its culture. And I hope that we're known for being theologically sound, handling finances correctly, being wise and diligent. But I tell you what, I hope we're known as a humble people. As a humble people. Because if we're not known as a humble people, how is the Spirit of the Lord going to work in our lives and manifest and exalt us instead of being in constant opposition against the one who opposes the proud. Just a few concluding thoughts. Truly, humility is indeed our greatest friend. It's the aroma of Christ to all we encounter. Being humble... Being humble increases our hunger for God and His Word. It opens the door to the working of the Spirit in our lives. It, it leads to intimacy with God. Isaiah says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Where pride once took credit, humility now gives honor. Where pride once focused on works, now humility focuses on grace. Where pride made me disgruntled, humility makes me thankful. Where pride once wanted to be seen, humility wants Christ to be known. Where pride seeks a legacy, humility seeks eternal rewards. And where pride is self-focused, humility is, is God-focused. I was kidding around this morning with the 8 o'clock service. You know, I, being the Frenchman that I am, I had to finish on a French quote. 
Monsieur François Fenelon. I figure he goes back to the 17th century, so you can't hold that, you know, modern France against him, right? But he says so truly, he says, humility is not a grace that can be acquired in a few months. It is a work of a lifetime. It is not to be acquired in a few months. It is a work of a lifetime. Oh, may we embrace, may we embrace such, such grace. I don't know what's, how the Lord is going to use this text in your mind, but I know for me, it's not hard for me to look very far and wide to see where pride can so easily take something and elevate it out of a place where only God should be getting the glory. May he make us humble people. This closing prayer. Father, we, we are grateful that you did not leave us wandering aimlessly in the desert. You came down to us. You revealed yourself to us. You humbled yourself in imaginable ways to leave and be amongst us, to die on the cross, bring about our salvation. Lord, what a, what a measure of humility. Lord, what I think is evident by the text we've seen today that you hate pride. But oh Lord, may we, may we humble ourselves before you. May we be humble people. Lord, don't let things that, you, blessings even that come upon us, help us not to take those and make prideful things out of them. Lord, may we humble ourselves before you and before others and allow you to be the one that does the exalting. We thank you for our time together this morning, Lord, around your word. Pray you may bless these people. In your name we pray. Amen.